Hey, how many of you, how many of you uh, remember Art Linkletter? Do you remember Art Linkletter? Yes. Some of you younger ones are saying, Art who? And um, he, 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 he did numerous programs. I, I asked the people at the Fellowship Saturday, uh, what was one of the oldest, I mean, one of his first earliest programs that he did? You remember the name of that? Well, that was later. What, there was a program, kids say the darndest things, but there was another program much earlier. It was called A Queen for a Day. Do you remember, some of you, way back, A Queen for a Day. And it was, you know, housewives all across the nation would stop and sit there and this lust and, you know, dream and covet, you know, oh, fair, I can only be queen for a day, but, you know, I'm living with this joker, it'll never happen, you know, probably. But, uh, but then it was kids say the darndest things. Uh, years ago, he told, uh, Linkletter told this uh, story about interviewing a group of preschool kids at their preschool, and they were doing some projects with their crayons and, and drawing things, and he came up to this one little guy who was just busily just engrossed in what he was drawing, and, and uh, Linkletter asked him, so what you doing? And the kid says, I'm, I'm drawing God. And kind of taken back, Art Linkletter chuckled a little bit, and he said, uh, well, I, I don't think anyone really knows what God looks like, do they? And undaunted by Linkletter's skepticism, the little guy looked up at him and says, they will when I get done. <laughs> Kids say the darndest things. Now, I'm not sure that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah could tell you what God looked like. But according to the passage we're going to look at this morning, in the year King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. And in this very significant passage in this very significant encounter with God. Isaiah is commissioned. He is ordained into his work as a prophet. It begins, though, a bit ominously when the verse says it was in the year King Uzziah died. In the midst of this dying king and in the midst of the, the news of his imminent death, now, it's fitting following on the heels of chapter 5. If you were here last week, chapter 5 was kind of one of those downer chapters. People of Judah, God's chosen people, the Israelites, were viewed as plants, grapevines that had been planted, and, and God was waiting for that sweet, succulent fruit. But instead stink fruit came. From verses 8 through 23 of chapter 5, God pronounces these woes because Israel had abandoned, had rebelled against God, and all they were producing was the rottenness of sin. Woes are pronounced. And then judgment comes in the last part of chapter 5 of as God warns that a, a nation, he's going to whistle and a nation is going to come. Verse 29 of chapter 5 said, its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and then carries it off with no one to deliver it. 
and it shall growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its cloud. Death, distress, darkness. In the gear, King Uzziah died. Uzziah, if you remember, as we talked about him a little bit in the introduction to this whole study of Isaiah, Uzziah, Uzziah was a good king, I mean, for the most part. He was 16 years old when he became king of Judah, and he reigned for 52 years. And it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that he did right in the sight of the Lord and continued to, to seek God. This guy started out very well. He brought security to the land of Judah. He expanded the armies. He brought financial wealth and prosperity to the people. During his reign, there was just this sense of, 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 of well-being, of, of peace, of, of good times. Until, as it says in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, when he became strong, Uzziah's heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and he was struck with leprosy. In the midst of, a, of an act of, of pride, of elevating himself to a position that he should not elevate himself, God struck him with leprosy. In fact, in the very act of his sin, all of a sudden, leprosy broke out on his face. And for the remainder of his reign, Uzziah is relegated to a, a private dwelling just for himself, spiritually, ceremonially unclean with leprosy to live out his days in shame. He grew strong. It was as if he didn't need God anymore. And he did some things that he shouldn't have done. Death, darkness, distress. And now he lays dying and is about to die. The future of Israel, the future of Judah is very bleak. But though the human king is dying, the passage that Mike read for us tells us that Isaiah got a vision that enthroned in heaven was the king of kings and lord of lords. And it was into this world of uncertainty, of darkness and distress and death that Isaiah encountered the king. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. What a scene that must have been. What a scene. All of a sudden, it's like the curtains of heaven roll back. Totally unexpected. And all of a sudden, the, the, the threshold begin to shake of the temple. Smoke begins to fill this, which would always accompany the, the vision of the Shekinah glory of God. Brilliance filled the place. And he sees on a throne the, the king, the Lord. The, the train of his robe fills the temple. And these angelic beings are, are antiphonally crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
One side, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The other side of seraphim respond. The whole earth is filled and it continues on and on. And there's Isaiah watching this whole thing. What a scene it must have been. Of course, we, we don't know for sure these seraphim. It's the only time in Bible that tells us about seraphim. Um, six wings, two they cover their face, two cover their feet, two they flew. Above the throne of God to serve him, to cry out, to, to proclaim the absolute separateness of God. That's what holiness means. There is no one like him. Holy, 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 repeated as a super superlative. Holy, holy. He's in a class all of his own. There is no one like the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. The, the seraphs, um, again, we don't know what they were or what they looked like. The same word, a seraph, is used f uh, for a serpent. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29, and again in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 6, a seraph is translated a flying serpent or a flying dragon. So we, we don't know for sure what this scene was like. But it must have totally changed Isaiah. The curtain separating heaven and earth pulled back. And Isaiah sees the Lord in his majesty. Which is quite interesting when you consider what John writes in John chapter 1 verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, he dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. No man has seen God at any time. So what was it or who was it that Isaiah saw. Is this some contradiction in the scriptures? Well, turn, keep your program there in Isaiah, but turn with me to John, John's Gospel, chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we get some insight. John chapter 12, let me read from starting at verse 35. John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. This theme of, of light and darkness. But it says, these things Jesus spoke, and then he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Verse 38 says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, and he quotes from chapter 53 of Isaiah, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for this reason, they could not believe, because Isaiah again said, and now he quotes from the passage this morning of Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. But then verse 41 says, these things Isaiah said 
because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now in the context, who is he referring to? Jesus. Jesus who is the light. Jesus that if people come to him in the light, they'll no longer walk in darkness. John is telling us that Isaiah was referring to Jesus Christ. When that curtain of heaven is rolled back and this heavenly scene comes before Isaiah and the, the temple shakes and smokes and, and this brilliant light and he sees the Lord and in our translations back in Isaiah chapter 6 it's capital L, small o, small r, small d which means the sovereign majesty. He is looking upon a theophany, a, a, a scene of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That is who was on the throne. And the impact of that vision was immediate upon Isaiah when he sees the Lord Jesus. Verse 5, back in Isaiah chapter 6, says, Then I said, Woe is me. He's just pronounced in chapter 5, six woes against the people. But now the spotlight is turned on him. And the only response he can... He could have before the scene of holiness, of, of absolute purity, woe is me, for I am ruined. The King James says, I am undone. The word is a word that means to, to be silenced, as in the silenced as in the, the face of some horror or even death. The word is used to, to speak of silence where it's like your breath is taken away because of what you have just seen or what you have just experienced. Some horror, some, some disaster, some sense of doom. And that's what Isaiah was feeling. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord, and now your translations will say capital L, capital R, capital R, and capital D, Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. And the only natural and rational response to an encounter with the holy God enthroned in majesty the only normal, rational response is to fall before him and cry, I am ruined. And in silence stand there as an unworthy creature in the midst of supremacy. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3. We won't Turn there, but Romans chapter 3, verse 9, 10, 11 in there talks about there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. Before a holy God, we all stand condemned. We all fall short. We're all sinners. And chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes, all the world stands condemned. We put our hand, he says, every mouth is silenced. And all the world stands accountable before a holy God. There is silence. The holiness of God, if we really come to understand who he is, 
it should take our breath away at how unholy we are, how unworthy we are. They did that for Peter. Luke chapter 5, again, we won't turn there, but you remember the story. Jesus comes and says, hey, Peter, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and so Peter does, and, and not at a time that he should have been doing it as a good fisherman, but he does it obediently, and then the nets are full of fish, and he's, the nets are breaking, and then all of a sudden, it strikes Peter. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And the reality of who he was in that moment, in the presence of the supreme king of kings, Peter was undone. Isaiah's confession of his unworthiness and sinfulness was the right response, the only rational response. But look what it resulted in. Verse 6 and 7, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, that altar where sacrifices were burned up, atoning for the sins of people, that altar that burned night and day to atone for the sins of people. Uh, an, a, a coal is taken from that altar, symbolizing that atoning power of God. And verse 7, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And then these sweet words, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The act of the seraphim symbolizing that atoning, gracious work of God, your, your iniquity is forgiven, your sin is gone. And it's then that a voice is heard. Verse 8, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. We need to stop just for a moment. There's some things I think that this passage tells us about Isaiah. If we could just probe a little bit into to what God was doing in Isaiah's life. Three things that I see that Isaiah needed and that God provided for him. First of all, Isaiah needed clarity. He needed clarity. He was living in uncertain days, nationally, internationally, financially, security, spiritual times of darkness. Ominous winds of change were blowing for 52 years. Uzziah, who had brought such stability and such safety and such prosperity, was dying or dead. Uncertainty darkness, distress. And Isaiah needed to see things not from that human perspective, but from a divine perspective. And when that temple began to shake, and when that smoke began to come, and when the curtain of heaven was rolled back, and he sees the Lord Jesus enthroned, lofty and exalted, he got clarity. For God was in charge. God was in charge. Now, when the earthly scene looked grim and distressful, the heavenly scene, oh, it was solid. God reigned supreme. God has never abdicated the throne. 
the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that after Jesus made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. There's a sense in which the reign of God is perpetual. There's a sense in which the Scripture is teaching God forever reigns. There'll be a, another twist to that that Isaiah will share of a particular time when the king will come back to earth and reign. God is not up in heaven, biting his fingernails, wondering what in the world is going to happen next. We may never have, you and I, a heavenly scene where the curtain is pulled back and we see the place that we're in shake and smoke and the throne of God revealed before our very eyes. But every time we open the Scriptures, every time we open the Scriptures, we are brought face to face with the living God. We're brought face to face with the revealed God of eternity. You listen to the news of the day, your heart sinks, disturbed and despair. I would encourage you to memorize Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We all need a fresh revelation. We all need clarity in the midst of the darkness of whatever it is we're going through. And Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 is one verse of the Scripture that can provide that. And we can be reminded in the year of death and darkness and distress, God reigns supreme and nothing will change that I seldom mention this some of you may recall 15 years ago I had cancer was diagnosed with cancer and from the time I was diagnosed till the time that I had to go under the knife was about a month about 30 days and we'd already planned a family vacation during that month of August and so my doctor said, well, just go ahead and do your vacation and enjoy, you know, enjoy the time. And I thought, what world planet is this guy on? <laughs> so Lisa and I, and at that time it was just the two girls left with us, and so we do our vacation thing. And it just, it just was wretched, <laughs> you know. And I'm worrying and stewing and fretting, and, and just it was not a fun time spending time in the scriptures and just heavy-hearted because no one wants to hear those words, you've got cancer. But praise God for 30 days because time in the word and time with my wife and kids, a time of refocusing, a time for clarity. By the time I got back, I realized God was on the throne. I went that morning to the hospital, I went to that pre-op room, and then they came and gave me a sedative or whatever, it was time. I barely got out a goodbye to my wife as I fell off to sleep, and then the gurney I go to the OR room. And you must understand that I have no recollection of this, but they wheel me into the OR room, the light I guess is bright there screwing around, my surgeon is there, and then all of a sudden they said, he told me this. I raised up on one arm on that gurney, and I said, before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. 
I said, you're kidding. He said, it was a very nice prayer. I said, is, is that all I said? <laughs> yeah, he said, you said amen, and you went back to sleep. And I, I'm sure he looked over at the anesthesiologist and said, juice that boy up. <laughs> Clarity. Clarity brings, it, it brings peace that passes all understanding. Clarity, the, the, the real scene, the reality of the throne of God and Jesus Christ reigning supreme. Is there some distress, some, dis, some darkness in your life? Pray that God will pull back the curtain as you go into his word. And if you wonder where to begin, let me suggest Isaiah 6.1. In the year of distress and darkness and death, there he is. The second thing Isaiah needed was cleansing. Isaiah's real need was not a new king like Uzziah to sit on the throne. Isaiah's real need was not national stability and prosperity to continue. His real need was not the status quo. Lord, just keep it the same. Things are going really well. Just why can't we just keep it the same? Isaiah's real need was to be able to say, woe am I. I am undone, for I have seen the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. What Isaiah really needed to hear was God say, your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. The situations of life, oh, we want them to be different. But the real need is cleansing. The real need is to be right with him, which comes when we see him in all his glory. It brings about this confession of of I am unworthy, you are worthy, and then it results in this idea of God's grace being poured out to us, granting purging, granting cleansing, granting spiritual healing. Because the more we understand who God is, the more we come to a place of brokenness, unworthiness, the more he fills us. The more we understand his majestic worthiness, and our unworthiness, the more his grace is amazing. Do you need cleansing today? Are there areas of our life that we have said, I'm on the throne in this area? I'd prefer to be the Lord of my life over this area. I appreciate the big things, God, but I think I can handle my finances or I think I can handle my relationship issues, or I think I can handle my retirement, and I can handle these things. I'll, I'll see you in glory, but I can handle the things of life. And we need to be cleansed from that sinful attitude that says, I'm in charge. And so 1 John 1, 9 is so wonderful when it says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And he'll forgive us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the picture of the grandeur and holiness of God 
Isaiah confessed and was cleansed. There's a third thing that Isaiah needed, and that was a calling. With a clear mind and a cleansed heart, Isaiah needed a calling to serve the king, and he got it. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? It could be that, that Trinitarian statement there, who will go for us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's just the, the heavenly court, the, the, the divine gathering, who will go for us? But Isaiah responded, here I am, send me. Understanding the touch of grace and mercy from God. His sins forgiven to serve the enthroned Lord and King of all. Here I am, send me. And all of a sudden, when we get this vision of who God is and our unworthiness and then touched by his grace, it's like, you know, my, my plans for life, uh, my desires for how I want to order my life really don't seem that important because we're serving the king. We're serving the Lord enthroned in majesty. The response of God's people when we have that understanding of who God is, it's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've been bought with a price. I'll glorify you in whatever you have for me, whatever you want in life. I need a calling from you. What is it? I'll serve you. It might be taking a meal across the street to a, to a, a person who doesn't know Jesus, and they, they just need a comforting, kind word from a, from a Christian neighbor. It might be someone at work who needs somebody to walk with them because their spouse has just left them. It might be somebody, a, a teenager, who's struggling in the aloneness and the struggle of not fitting in, and they just need someone to encourage them and tell them about Jesus. It might be helping in a nursery or helping in the youth ministry, or it might be involved in some ministry downtown or, or a missions trip or where, wherever God would want to use your gift in this. But folks, the Bible tells us over and over again, when you come face to face with the living God and who he is and what he's done for us, when we come face to face with the transcendent holiness and separateness of God, and yet that transcendent God becomes imminent and, and very real in our day-to-day -day life of his grace and his mercy. Arms shoot up almost naturally. Here I am. Send me. Use me however you want. Now, it was a challenge for Isaiah, and it wasn't probably what he expected, but in verse 9 and 10, this was his marching orders. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with the ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, here's your marching orders. Go out and be a failure. <laughs> Proclaim my message, because as you do, it'll solidify the hardness of their heart. See, what this passage is teaching us, as we've known from the previous chapters, what we know from the history of Israel, for decades, for centuries, this was a people who were stiff-necked and rebellious against God. And in that 8th century B.C., 
it had crescendoed to this point where God in his sovereign justice said, enough. And he hardens their heart to a point of no return. Grace and mercy had been extended time and time, century after century, but he was not going to strive forever. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you keep reading in Romans chapter 1, and what does God conclude? He gives them over to their sin. He wipes his hands and he gives them over in their sinfulness, in their hardness of heart. That's what's happening right here. The verdict is rendered in verse 11. I said, Lord, how long? How long is this going to continue? And he answered and he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, or houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, until they're wiped out, until it's over and the judgment is complete. In 701 B.C., Sennacherib and the Assyrian armies came. They ravaged the land of Judah, Judah destroyed it, killed, murdered, and then held the people of Jerusalem hostage. We'll get to that in Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39. A hundred or so years after that, it was the Babylonians who came finished the job as they took God's people away into captivity. Centuries later, in 70 A.D., this time it was the Romans. It was like the final nail in the coffin. And by the time the Romans were done, there was not a Jew left, either alive or in the land. It's about a time that is yet to come that Bible prophecy speaks of. We'll get to it another time in Isaiah study. It unnerves us a little bit to think that there's a God in heaven who will say enough and render a verdict. It's like John says uh, in the, his epistles, there, there is a sin that leads to death. But there is this glimmer of hope, as we often see in Isaiah. We've seen it throughout the first five chapters. And I think, though, verse 13 is a very, very difficult verse to interpret. I certainly don't understand it. And you can read multiple commentaries on this, and they don't fully understand it. But there seems to be this, this sliver of hope, because a tenth portion in it will remain and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, but the holy seed is its stump. I want to I leave you this morning with this image. For life may have cut you down. You look around and you wonder, what, what is there left? 
a time of life that just seems to be where darkness has come in. It may be because of some sin or bad choices of your own doing. Many times it's not. It's the sin and, and choices of someone else that has wrecked havoc in your own life. And now you, you are experiencing the fallout of someone else's bad choices and sin. But here you are. You feel like a barren, cut down to the ground stump. And here's the good news. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, he's going to bring it to life again as you trust him, as you call out to the God who is enthroned in majesty on high, the transcendent God who is working out his plan in our life in a real imminent way. And he pours out his grace and his mercy. And we rest in him. In due time, life springs. Life springs. King Uzziah died. And in the year of his death, in all the distress and darkness and turmoil, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne exalted, lofty, glorious. May a fresh vision of an exalted king be ours. May we have greater clarity. May there be a, a refreshing cleansing. And may we once again be called to serve him. It all starts when we behold the king. Let's pray. Our Father, we can get, I admit this, we can get so caught up in the busyness and the struggles of life. It's so easy to get our gaze onto our our circumstances of life. It's so easy to see things on this side of the heavenly curtain. And so, Father, you, you invite us into your word, which is where we find communion with you, into the very throne room of God, and with that renewed and refreshed vision of who you are. Um, May we be marked by a, a greater dependence and fervor. Uh, just say, Lord, here I am. Use me. For you're the potter and I'm just a piece of clay. You are the transcendent Holy One and I am, I am unworthy. And Father, thank you so, so much that when in those moments you come with that fresh touch of grace, and mercy, and, 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 and you smile at us and, and pick us up and put us into service. You refresh us with your presence. May we behold you, Father. In Christ's name I pray, amen.